After 30 years as an attorney, Judy Cohen left the practice of law to dedicate herself to Warrior One. Warrior One is the only mindfulness teacher training program in the world developed by lawyers for lawyers. In this episode, Judy unpacks the emotional baggage that prevents many of us from maximizing our success and happiness in the law. We dive deeply into the complex challenges facing lawyers, and Judy shares wisdom, insight, and practical tips for thriving rather than simply surviving. Judy eloquently and passionately describes why a mindfulness practice is as essential to a lawyer as their laptop and legal pad. Along the way, Jeff and Bob share their own struggles in the law and how a growing mindfulness practice serves them. Judy also leads us all through a mindfulness exercise that illustrates how easily lawyers can begin to implement her teachings. Enjoy this episode of Iron Advocate as we continue to explore how lawyers can kill it in the practice of law without it killing us. You're listening to Iron Advocate, the podcast dedicated to you, the trial attorney, sage, visionary, warrior, unfiltered, no holds barred, Iron Advocate. Join Bob Levant, Jeff Rebel, and today's top legal minds on a journey to discover how to kill it in the law without it killing you. Because being the best advocate for others begins with being the best advocate for yourself. Judy, welcome. We are delighted to have you. We hear so much about mindfulness today. The term is in the popular lexicon. What is it And why should lawyers in particular care about mindfulness? There's a lot of definitions of mindfulness out there, but let's go with a classic definition, which would be paying attention in the present moment. And it's an old practice. We have a lot of secular mindfulness now in this country that's been around for close to 40 years, but that's the tip of the iceberg mindfulness practices themselves have been around for a couple of thousand years. And why they're important for lawyers? All the research tells us that if we can be present, if we can be in the present moment, then it doesn't matter whether the task that we're doing is a pleasant task or an unpleasant task, we're going to be happier. So that's probably the most important point. And it unrolls from there. Why would practicing mindfulness, particularly for advocates, how or could that make them a better advocate? So you, you, you said the words practicing mindfulness, and I think that's a, a good place to start in the sense that there is the definition of mindfulness, and then there's how do we cultivate the ability to be mindful? And the definition of mindfulness, being present, uh, is nice to be able to say, but the, the real question is how do we train our minds so that we can be present and how does that make us a better lawyer, like you said. So if I'm standing in a courtroom and I am about to examine a witness or I'm about to say something to the jury or even about to make an objection, if my mind is wandering if I'm worried about what's gonna happen next, or if I'm thinking about what I forgot back at the office, 
and I don't realize that that's happening, I'm in trouble. I've just lost my train of thought. I'm not in the flow. I'm going to lose something that somebody says, and I might miss something really important. Judy, let me follow up on that. Um, you, you said, you know, I'm in the courtroom. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a, you know, of a sort of juxtaposition because when you're in the courtroom, you're worrying about controlling everything. You know, there's no instant replays and, and you got to be worried about everything. And, and this is coming from somebody who spent a lot of time in, in the courtroom. And listening to us are people that run the spectrum, right? Some who are mindful already and others at the other end of the spectrum who may either think there's no place for it in the law with them or just haven't thought about it. So can you drill down a little more? I'm, I'm in the courtroom and I've literally just asked four or five questions that I feel like the witness hammered me on. The judge is on top of me asking me whether or not this is a deposition or a trial cross. And I am feeling really overwhelmed and I'm starting to get scared. Um, what do you tell that lawyer, me in this case, uh, about mindfulness that I can utilize in that moment? So you're standing in the courtroom and the first thing you said is when you're in the courtroom, you're worried about everything. And what I would submit to you is yes and no. My guess is that for you, Bob, in your best moments, actually you're not worried about anything and you're in the flow. You know what you've got, you know what you don't have. When the witness gives you back a bunch of stuff that's really devastating, you know that you're feeling devastated, but you also know where you can go to next when the judge is giving you flack. You know that that's happening and you have the presence of mind, you're grounded and you can manage that. So the difference between being worried about everything, which again, I bet you're not, uh, and um, knowing that worry is what's happening or knowing that devastation has just happened is the difference between being unmindful and being mindful. So I think, so I, I can tell you, I've litigated the spectrum. You know, I was not mindful when I started uh, as a young public defender with Jeff. And over the years, I have achieved the place of, of mindfulness that is still growing. That having been said, though, it's that balance where, for me, part of being mindful is recognizing that I am actually sometimes worried about things, right? Can, can you speak to that? So I, I think for me, that, that moment is, okay, I, I am worried. I don't like that that just happened. This over here, I have to control. Juror number seven looks like they're sleepy. And juror number three is staring out the window like they don't want to hear anything from me. And so, yeah, those things are all going on. And for me, part of the mindfulness is actually acknowledging it, right? So how do lawyers get to that place? Right. Well, okay. So you're asking two different questions. One is, what are we talking about here when we say worrying is happening? And then the other is, how do we get to that place? So let's first talk about, about the, um, the landscape that you've just painted for us. Um, so let's, and let's add a line to the definition of mindfulness. So present moment awareness, let's add the second line which is courage and grace, okay? And by courage and grace, what is meant by that is I understand what is happening in the present moment. I can face it. The fact is I'm worried. 
And I have the courage to actually see, oh, worry. Worry is really present right now. As a matter of fact, it's kind of overwhelming me. So now overwhelm is happening. And as long as I know that that is what's happening, as long as I have the presence of mind to be able to take a step back mentally and see that I'm a little bit overcome in this moment and I need to let go of some of that worry so that I can refocus. So you're speaking to, and you're speaking from a perspective of someone who has a mindfulness practice and knows how to do that. So how do you get there? Uh, The most important thing is that you need to develop a, a practice, a meditation practice that enables you to take some time every day when you're not on the hot seat, when you're not in the courtroom or in the office, when you can do some solitary practice on your own in a safe spot, in a chair, on a cushion, in your house, in your apartment, where you can sit quietly and become familiar with the way that the mind actually works. Come to understand how the mind works, that the mind will wander off, that the mind will worry, that the mind will grasp for things, that the that anger will arise, that fear will arise, so that you can become familiar with these states of mind and start to take them a little less personally and not be overcome by them. And then that solitary practice is portable, transportable to your time out in the world. You're encouraging people to develop a non-judgmental awareness of what is arising in their minds on a moment-to-moment basis. Do I have that right? You do. And I have a little bit of concern about the word non-judgmental, although that's sort of the classical definition of secular mindfulness, which comes from a a wonderful international program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction that was started by probably the father, grandfather of secular mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn. And it's just, a, I mean, really nothing short of miraculous in terms of what has been able to be accomplished. Um, I have a little concern about the word non-judgmental for lawyers because judgment is such an important part of what we do. And it's also a, a word in our vocabulary. And that's why I like to say present moment awareness with courage and grace. So it's more than just being non-judgmental. It's really turning towards whatever is arising in the moment, whether I'm furious or whether I'm terrified, right? Really being able to say, oh, I'm scared right now. And being graceful about that. Oh, that's just fear right now. That's just what's happening. And suddenly I'm not caught by it. I'm not overwhelmed by it, and it's not informing what I'm saying or what I'm doing. Judy, doesn't that also go along with beginning to embrace the practice, right? So many, particularly lawyers, I think, because we're control freaks, I hear them say, well, I can't meditate. I'm not good at this. Mindfulness doesn't work for me. My mind's moving too fast. What you just spoke about in terms of accepting you know, the fears, the failures, can you speak to actually applying that to right so as a lawyer we're using our minds in a certain way and we've been trained to use them in that way we've been trained to take on as much as possible we've been trained to always assess always look for the dangers look for what's going to go wrong what's going to blow up what's going to go south Um, we've been trained to be um, perfectionists and pessimists at the same time And here we are in this 
in this um, kind of a war zone a lot of the time. Even if you're sitting at your desk, it can feel like that, right? So we have this training, but that's all it is, is a training, right? None of us were born with those qualities of mind. I mean, we might have a proclivity in one direction or another. And so the first thing is, as we're learning mindfulness, as we're sitting, as we're practicing, as we're meditating in this safe space where there's no stakes, right? Where we can just look and see what's happening. The first thing is to gain some familiarity, some intimacy and familiarity with the machinations of our own minds. Oh, my mind is often judging. Oh, here's judgment again. Or here's fear again. Here's anger again, right? So uh, for a long time for me, for example, um, when I first started practicing for years, all I could do was to notice, oh my goodness, there's so much anger, 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 anger. And just to note that, right? But to note that with some, some courage, but also some grace, oh, that's just what's happening, right? And as we start to see that, and as we stop sort of pushing it away and not believing that there's something wrong, because that's what's happening, because that's what's happening for everybody, right? In one way or another, then it starts to subside. Judy, you used a, a couple of words at, at, at the beginning of your response that, that we are trained as lawyers and taught as lawyers to act in this way that we're referring to. If I could add to that, that it, it, it's, I mean, it's training, but it's the culture, right? So we, we learn it, not only might be, we be wired that way, but then the nature of the people within the practice and the culture of the practice itself pushes you further that way. And, and you're, um, you know, I know, uh, spend time teaching at Cal Berkeley. Can you address whether this really, in order to get it right and, and get the practice immersed in this, requires us to penetrate the law schools with this conversation and, and how much of this is starting to brew in, you know, lawyers before they're even lawyers? Uh, right from the first day of law school, if not the way that they're wired prior to that. Oh, we absolutely need to be doing this. I mean, we really need to be penetrating the kindergartens, but let's start with the law school since that's where you started. Well said. And, um, so I've been teaching about 10 years uh, in the law school classroom, Mindfulness for Lawyers, the last five, six now at Berkeley. And when I first started teaching, people were signing up for the course because they thought it would be an easy course, which PS, you know, it's not just because we're really looking in <clears throat> to our own minds and taking a look to see what's going on. But now only a half a decade later at Berkeley, I mean, when I ask my students at the very beginning, what experience they have with mindfulness, very few of them are coming in with no experience. They've had a class or they've had a mindfulness component at their yoga studio, or they've, they've had a teacher that they've been following, they've sat a retreat. So we're seeing a lot more in the profession already. When I go out to a big group of people, like a, a bar association, if I ask how many people are practicing, hands go up all over the room. But take it the next step when a lot of those people get to whatever firm they're at, let's say, particularly, uh, you know, maybe the larger the firm, the harder to shift the culture. 
is their voice getting muted there? And, and what, do, what, do, what do we need to do on that front and other fronts? Well, we need to bring mindfulness training into big law and small law and into government and into the public interest sector. Um, and we're doing that, but it's happening slowly. We really need to bring it in as important as a tool that's as considered as important as legal research and writing, as important as biz dev, so that we don't miss this crucial element of training the legal mind. You started a group or an organization called Warrior One. When did you start that? 2009. And, and what is Warrior One for the folks listening to this who have never heard of it? Uh, Warrior One is an organization that offers mindfulness training to the legal profession. And, and we do sort of two separate things. We offer training and then we also offer a teacher training for people who want to learn how to bring this into their own firms and organizations. And just full disclosure for people listening, I have gone through the training with Judy. The, I, I was trained by Judy over the course of a year to teach lawyers how to meditate. And it's... Um, one of our it best taught, students. It, thank you very much. It taught me a lot. When you have people approach you to be part of, of Warrior One, is there a common thread that you find regarding the mindset of the people who enroll in Warrior One? What well, kind of breaks down into people who are coming for mindfulness training and people who are coming for teacher training? People who are coming for mindfulness training are coming because they're suffering in some way in their, in their firm, at their organization, and they want to feel better and they want a set of skills and tools so that they can feel better themselves, suffer less, and also um, be of better service to their clients and, and also to their colleagues just by becoming a more mindful person, calmer steadier, less reactive, more effective. The people who come to our teacher training have already been practicing and they're the people who want to bring this out into the world. They want to start a training at their public defender's office or at their firm, or they want to go out on their own and work one-on-one -on -one with lawyers, that sort of thing. So you're saying that that. It's been your experience, and, and this has been my experience of myself, that it was suffering that made people turn to mindfulness as a way to understand the, the structures of their own mind. Is that, that's your experience? Yeah, I mean, you could call it suffering. You could call it stress. You could call it unhappiness. Judy, is there a, a common thread that, that you can identify through this suffering unhappiness um, that you hear, you know, from a majority of the lawyers that come to you, a, a, um, a little more texture that you can give us to identify what that suffering is. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. We, we sometimes call it the four perils. People come because they're overwhelmed. People come because they feel like they have been trained to be uh, such good issue spotters that they, are highly reactive, too reactive, and they don't know how to turn it off. 
So they sit down at a restaurant and they start looking for typos in the menu or they get home and they start, <laughs> they start <sighs> seeing faults with their partner that they weren't seeing before. Um, they, they come because they have either so much anxiety or so much depression around the requirement that we be complete perfectionists in our jobs. And they know that that's not possible and they don't know how to get out of that and still practice excellence. So true. And then the fourth peril is that they are living surrounded by conflict. So they're coming because they feel embattled or they're coming because they feel combative or they're getting some feedback in their lives that they're combative. I mean, that's a, such a critical thread, right? That, that we are, as lawyers, um, you know, paid to be in conflict, right? And, and, and do battle with the other side. We often have clients who want us doing that battle. So can, can you speak to that person who can still play that role and benefit from Warrior One or other trainings? Sure, yeah. So when you are essentially a gladiator, right? And you're, you're in the, inside the Colosseum. There you are, right? With your sword. And there's either another gladiator or there's a lion in there with you. Or both. Or both. <laughs> um, what's, what's your best state of mind? Is your best state of mind um, anger, reactivity, rage, pure aggression? Any soldier will tell you that's not right. Your best state of mind is calm, clear, discerning, and grounded. And so it's really the difference between bringing that set of skills into a highly conflictual situation, into an adversarial situation. And I was a transactional lawyer for 30 years. And in case there's any of them on the podcast, I can tell you it's no less combative. <laughs> um, so it's really the difference between, between bringing these really fine advocacy skills to the table and not having the ability to access those in the moment. When I first started meditating and I was trying to understand my own suffering and, and you know, really just get rid of it, I found that if I, when I sat, it made things worse. And I would sit and I would feel, you described the overwhelm, the reactivity, anxiety, depression, conflict, I, every one of those I experienced. And I've had friends who, I've recommended meditation for, and they say, oh my God, it was horrible. I sat down and I experienced a, an overwhelming number of feelings and they didn't want to go back. What would you say to somebody like that who has that kind of real resistance, visceral feeling that they don't want to dig into what I guess, for lack of a better term, would just be shit? Yeah, yeah, it's hard. I mean... We've successfully repressed or turned away from a lot of things in order to be successful. 
we're not the only profession that's done that. I mean, think of the ER docs right now, you know, they're trying to turn away from all of the devastations so that they can keep working. And it's a strategy, but it's a strategy that takes its toll on our humanity. So if we're pointing at effectiveness and well-being, you know, we can be effective, but we could be a wreck. Or we could be effective, but we could be on so many medications that we're not able to function outside of our office situation, outside of our work situation. So if what we're really trying to do is to be a happy, joyful person who also happens to be a kick-ass trial lawyer, then we have to be in touch with our own humanity. And to do that isn't always easy. You know, we're turning towards a lot of difficult stuff. How do you practically help somebody? And I, and I imagine you must have had this come up many times when you're working with folks. The difficulty and resistance that someone feels when they go close their eyes, sink into, you know, their, their feelings as opposed to just their thoughts about their, their life. The most important piece is... Uh, a a practice of compassion and specifically a practice of self-compassion, which is something that um, in the law sounds pretty soft and maybe even unwelcome, right? Because being self-compassionate would mean that there was actually something to attend to when in fact we're tough and we have this whole culture that, you know, we're going to be fine. We can do it on our own. But the truth is that, when we bring self-compassion to the moment and we can take a look at, wow, this is really difficult what I'm going through or what I'm looking at. I'm sitting here and I'm seeing, for me, it was, wow, there's so much anger, right? There's so much fear. Then for years I was working with fear. God, there's so much fear, right? And so the practice is not about, oh, there's anger, there's fear. How do I get rid of it? It's how do I make enough space so that we can coexist, but it's not running me. And that requires some self-compassion. You're pointing to a a paradox. And I think the one that that Bob and I um, address, and I don't know if if you've seen our picture on our website there, it it looks like two tough people. In fact, a friend of mine said that we look like a couple of thugs in the picture. And the picture was, we thought about it a lot and, and it's meant to portray how difficult what we do is, how difficult being a warrior is, and the paradox that we have, and you're pointing right towards it, and you didn't say it this way, but I'll say it this way, that softness, using that muscle, softness is actually strength. And if that can be something that Bob and I can embody, and believing this is a daily practice for me, coming back to this myself, and I practice, I sit in the morning for about 30 minutes, and it's a, it's a constant practice because it's not my, um, my default conditioning is not to move into things with compassion and softness. Have you found a way that, that could help someone like me, someone who's trained, let's say, in the dark arts of litigation, used to being aggressive? Are there ways, not hacks, but simple ways other than grace to get folks like me to sit Well, first of all, I have to say I love those pictures. (laughs) 
Um, they're, they're really terrific, and and they do they they portray warriors. And um, yeah, I mean, getting people to sit. You know, you have to be motivated, and you can start slow. I mean, I always recommend people start at point one. You know, six minutes. Or point two, 12 minutes, because we've all got that much time in the day. Um, but a lot of times, it's not just do I have the time. It's can I disconnect? Can I let go of all of the doing and just be for a few minutes, which is tremendously different from the legal culture or even the dominant culture? Judy, can I can I uh, ask you to? go a little further on the point of when you talked about mindfulness and generally, you know, these, you talked about the area of, of wanting to, to not suffer as much. And then you also mentioned, you know, wanting to have this not bleed into your personal relationship. So for me, for many years of doing the trial work, I just morphed into being that guy all the time, you know, um, conflict inside myself. Every problem had to be solved with force. Um, every situation had to be controlled and it bleeds into all your personal relationships, you know, whether it's with your kids or a spouse or friends or business partners, because we see what happens with partnerships in the law all too often. And I'm a believer that it comes from that place and, and uh, creating conflict where there may or may not even need to be any. So can you speak to that part of it, which is how the mindfulness can serve a lawyer who may be looking around and thinking deep inside themselves, man, my relationships are kind of screwed up, but God, am I a good lawyer, right? And good litigator. And listen, this is just how it's going to have to be, right? I come home and you know, that's who I am, right? Cause that's what happens, right? We start living that 24 seven and we start identifying with it. Can you, can you yeah. unpack that for me? I can, I can unpack it. I can totally relate to um, because even yeah. though I, I did transactional work, I was like this, you know, I did these huge commercial leases and I, I just remember like it was so engaging. And then I started this company, which is a mindfulness company. And after a few years, I was working so hard and all the time and I was just completely in it. And my husband was like, are you doing anything different? Right. And so we do get into this state of mind where it feels natural to be doing, doing, doing all the time and to be doing in a kind of an adversarial way, because that's our system. Um, and the biggest tool to help us make different choices at different times of the day, right, is the tool of awareness. So I always like to say that mindfulness is about first understanding and gaining this intimacy with the mind and how it works. And then being able to make choices about what state of mind I want to be in, in any given moment. And practices like as I walk in the door of my house, back in the day when we used to be out of the house and then walk into the door. Um, as I walk into the door of my house, I'm going to change my state of mind right now. And I'm going to point towards a state of mind that um, is attending to the people who are here, that is unconditionally friendly, that is compassionate and empathic and joyful. And as I practice those, 
on the cushion or in my meditation practice, I can switch back and forth. And actually, then I find myself switching back and forth more frequently at my desk too. And lo and behold, it turns out that the skills of the gladiator are, or the warrior are only required some of the day at the office. They're not actually required when I'm talking with my assistant, when I'm talking with my partner, when I'm having lunch with a friend. Or Judy, are you saying that Bob shouldn't act like a gladiator or the Incredible Hulk around his kids? <laughs> no, I, you know what I'm really saying is you know that that you have the ability to choose. So Jeff, why, the Incredible Hulk reference, why don't you actually you know, offer that to Judy. And, you know, cause I still battle with that even after, you know, developing a mindfulness practice, a daily yoga practice, seven days a week. So, so tell Judy what the incredible Hulk is. The incredible Hulk reference is from last summer, Judy, that the Bob was going into a criminal trial and he had, um, he had a lot of stuff going on. He and I were in the midst of, of sort of birthing iron advocate and, he had to go from a state of mind that was more free flowing, more <clears throat> wide open. And I watched him go narrow, 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 narrow. And it was, and I just, the image came to mind. It was like watching Bruce Banner go from being this soft cerebral scientist to being something totally different. <laughs> and then when he transformed into that, he was like, okay, I'm here. I'm fucking here. I'm on this. And his mind was razor sharp and we were going forward and I'm going to crush the government. They have, they don't have shit on my client. And he was talking in that kind of way. And it became, and I started laughing and I said, you've become the incredible Hulk. You've transformed and now you're in it and you can remain in it. And it literally, and I understand this place where, where you're in a state of consciousness, you go from being something that's softer. And I was laughing and making a note about how, when you walk in the door, I have found that hard to do, to walk, leave my work behind and walk in and say, Hey honey, my wife's a lawyer. And just, I have to really work at, I have to sit in my car and breathe. It's a practice that I use and tell myself you're moving into something different now because yeah. my work has bled into, and now it's even harder with the coronavirus that we're sitting in my desk. And I, I mean, I could, part of me become so obsessive both in my law practice as a, as a divorce lawyer and, and, and our advocate, I could sit here all day and all night and I have to literally move myself. But back to Bob, I have watched him. It's easier to see it in somebody else transform himself into something. And he's extremely effective. I mean, this is, this, he is one of the best trial lawyers I've ever met and it takes a toll. Yeah. Yeah. That's with a mindfulness practice. It's still happening. So, yeah, Go ahead, he was he yeah, was, no, no, he no. was I mean, unbearable does. before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm less unbearable now. The last five to ten yes, years, just slightly less. Go ahead, Judy. Well, I just I think what's interesting that that you're pointing out, Jeff, is that you have this awareness of what's happening. And so even though the transition may be imperfect or maybe you don't even accomplish it some of the time, you're aware that it's possible and you're aware that you're coming to the driveway in one state of mind and wanting to shift to another state of mind. And we could talk about tools to help you shift. But I think the, the first 
tenet of mindfulness is you have to study and practice enough so that you can see that you have that choice, that these are two different states of mind and that this more um, relaxed, steady, less reactive, more joyful state is available because you have to know that it's available in order to point towards it and get there. Right. It's, it's, you know, sometimes we use the analogy of, of a car and you've been in a race car all day and it feels so good to race it around the track. And then you walk in and it becomes something completely different. And my wife, who is an extraordinarily intuitive, wise person, will say to me, you got to put it down. You got to stop. Just put it down. I don't want to have another client calling you. I don't want to hear another expert on your phone. Don't take it. Put it down. And I tell you, she's been a huge part of my practice too, but it's still so damn hard. What I'm really hearing you say, Jeff, is that they're the, the, one of the most fundamental instructions in mindfulness is let go. And you're sitting, you're sitting, you're sitting, and the thoughts are wild and the emotions are wild, and it's just let go. And it's not let go of, it's let go into the present moment. It's let go into whatever is there. And so that changes this or it has the potential to change this from it's so hard to, oh, right in this moment, I can let go. And maybe sometimes that's physically, I'm going to let go of this phone, let go of it, put it down. Or sometimes it takes the form of, I'm going to let go of my computer, I'm going to leave it someplace else, right? So there's a kind of a physical letting go. And there's also a kind of a mental, emotional, just here I am right here, whatever's happening, that's what's happening. And really pay attention. Judy, can, can I jump in here? Because what I love that's so critical that I hear you saying is let go. But a lot of what you've also said is be aware and it's okay to embrace the battle. And, and that's sort of the beauty, the synergy of what I hear you saying. And so for me, like that Incredible Hulk guy, uh, that Incredible Hulk guy gets it done. And sometimes I just got to sit with being that Incredible Hulk guy. And, and, and you know, Jeff calls my, my office the laboratory and I'll get in a, a place where even Jeff can't get me. Bob, listen, you know, it's X number of days, like you're starting to fray, you give it a break. And I have to recognize that, but I also have to recognize there's a certain power in that. And can you address that uh, balance between letting go and frankly, not letting go, just being aware? Really interesting the way that you framed it. I guess I might suggest a slightly different frame. Please and do. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't take any of his questions seriously. Answer the question you want to answer. No, help me. Help me, please. <laughs> if you have an answer, give it to us. Well, I'm sure I don't have an answer, but let me let me offer a different frame. So, so you've got this it's sort of almost posed as a duality. Right? I'm either letting go or I'm paying attention. But it feels like that, though, Judy. What Bob is saying really resonates with me. He has great focus. But yesterday, for example, I was telling Bob, you better just let go for a bit. 
Bob is getting his master's in psychology right now. He's running a law practice. He's raising two teenagers and he has iron advocate. So it does have that feeling like I have to be in or out all the way in or all the way out. So help me with this. So you're, you're either in or you're out of each moment, right? So, so you're, it's not that you're in a set of plans or a bunch of trial prep or a bunch of reading for your degree or a, a soccer game with your kid. You're either in that or you're out and you're in the present moment. It's, you're, you're always in with a mindfulness practice. You're either in or you notice you're not in and you come back, right? But whatever moment is there, each moment's going to be different. So, some moments are going to be this very intense, ferocious, passionate, that's what I'm in right now. But there's an invitation to be in our lives in the other ways as well. So if we can be let go into the present moment, then we can do that and it doesn't matter what the moment is offering, we can be with it. And so, Judy, what I hear you saying, again, is that part of it is acceptance, right? I mean, is, is, that, is that part of what you're saying is, is uh don't create unnecessary conflict or turmoil, right? On top of our ordinary turmoil. Don't fight yourself so much. Is that part yeah. of what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, don't fight yourself so much. And here, here's a really good example, right? Can I just say this, that Jeff just dropped off of the he'll Zoom. He'll be back. He'll right? be back. He'll be, he'll be back. <laughs> he'll be back. But, but I was in the middle of talking. And so what happened for me was, as I was talking, I had this sort of thought that I was unpacking and then distraction arose. And I noticed that my mind just kind of went away and I... I wasn't paying attention to the question anymore because the thought arose, uh-oh, what happened to Jeff? When will he be back? Should we stop? Is Bob <laughs> going to stop me, right? And so, but just knowing, oh, distraction is happening. Let go. Come back to the present moment. The present moment is I was talking about X. And so that's, that's our experience as humans, right? And this letting go is, oh, but what's happening right now? Okay. Just be with what's happening right now. Distraction. And now coming back. Both of those were what was happening. One is not better than the other. They're just happening. I constantly find myself having a very strong agenda and a huge amount of motivation that takes me out of the moment. That is my agenda having to go forward with it. And I find that my meditation practice helps me to put that down. And that's been one of the benefits of it. Is that something that resonates with you? What are you, what are you putting down? The determination that it has to be my way. I have an agenda of things that have to happen. It doesn't always leave me available to see what's in front of me. It's the, the strong agenda that I have, the, the, the push and, you know, whether it's my task list or, or what I have to be, be doing. And I've found over the years of meditating, it helps me. And I guess the metaphor I use, instead of having a closed fist, my hand's a little more open than it used to be. Yeah, Just it's a little bit. That's a beautiful metaphor. Yeah. I mean, uh, do you find that you get less done when you take a more relaxed approach? 
No, I mean, it's the, it's the paradox of the whole thing, right? It's, I get more done if I'm more relaxed, but it's, it's very counterintuitive. I mean, and that's part of why we, what I said to you before about the softness of compassion and empathy. If you can embody that more, it actually makes you a much better warrior. Could you work on it less? And could you just do it a little bit more? Ah, listen to you. What a great question. I mean, th- this comes back to the, the, you said in the first part of this conversation, use the word flow three different times. How do I know? I was taking notes. I was being very anal lawyer. So <laughs> I have found in my own life too that, that this is this paradox, right? And, and part of my bio is I played basketball in college and I played a lot of basketball. And this place where the harder you try, the worse, let's say for basketball, you, you have to be aware. But if you really try hard, you're not going to be in a flow. And it's this place where you have to let go. I mean, there's, there's no other way. I guess it's surrender. And here's the paradox for me as a trial lawyer. I'm a better trial lawyer advocate if I surrender. Well, surrender is the last thing you want your warrior to be doing, right? So it's this, these things. How do you hold those at the same time? I know them to be true. It's yeah. hard to talk about it. Yeah. Well, some of it is the vocabulary, I think. I mean, we can't use the word surrender in the courtroom. <laughs> That's not a word for the courtroom. So what is a better word? You know, relaxed, steady, um, focused, in the flow. Um, I wasn't a, a trial lawyer, you know, but one time I was putting a deal to bed and it was Christmas Eve. And we had the chief title officer for the Northern California and about 10 other people on the line. This was long before we had screens like this. And um, everybody was working through Christmas Eve to get this deal put to bed. And the client was on the beach in Maui three hours earlier, you know, with probably a drink in his hand. And there were a lot of feelings in the room, a lot of distraction of like, you know, how unfair is this? This really sucks. How's he making us do this? Blah, 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 blah. We didn't really have any choice. We just had to let go into the moment and get the deal closed. And we did it. And it was really, um, it was a very relaxed, I was the team leader and it was, it was just a very relaxed moment for all of us, even as we were working our eyeballs out. Mindfulness gives us the ability to really be with what's there. Even when what's there is jealousy, like I want to be on the beach with a drink in my hand. Folks are, are hearing you. They're going to go and look at your program, Warrior One. Is there some kind of a, a, a sample, uh, an exercise you can do with Jeff and I that'll open a window for folks into, you know, what all this feels like in real life. Sure. You want to do a little meditation together? I'm game. Great. Okay. All right. Great. <clears throat> so first thing is just to find a, a posture that is comfortable for you. And uh, one way to think about that posture is to sit in an upright way that is also relaxed. A lot of times uh, 
the instruction is to sit away from the back of the chair, but you might be really exhausted or you might need some support. So in terms of your posture, if you're sitting, whatever is the most supportive. And uh, it might even be that standing is a more supportive posture for you. And that's fine too. You can stand. And it could even be that lying down is the best posture. So which posture you choose, or you could even be walking back and forth in your, in your office or in the room. The, the choice of the posture is not important. What's important is knowing which posture you've chose. So just take a moment and uh, bring some awareness to the posture that you've chosen. Feel the body in that posture. You can kind of feel into the sense of gravity that's holding you in this posture. Kind of a combination of gravity holding you in your chair or on the floor, on the earth, if you're fortunate enough to be outside. Uh, and the energy, the life in your body that's holding you upright. It's kind of a beautiful combination of those two uh, physical energies. Nothing mysterious about it, but maybe everything mysterious about it. Just feeling into that. And then sensing into the breath. And uh, really looking for the physical sensation of the breath. So finding the beginning of an in-breath and following it with your attention. So placing your attention on the physical sensation of breathing in and breathing all the way to the top of the in-breath. Notice there's a little pause at the top of the in-breath and then the way the breath flows out of the body, the sensation of that. And there's a, a pause at the bottom of the out-breath. And it's good to choose a location where you can pay attention to the breath, the sensation of the breath. One location would be the nostrils. How does the air feel as it flows in through the nostrils? My window is open and I just had a sense of the air being warm as it flowed in through my nose. And then a little cooler as it flows back out whatever your experience is. So the nostrils, one place. Another might be the rising and falling of the chest. So just what does the air feel like as the chest rises and falls or what does the chest feel like as it rises and falls? And then the third place that you can pay attention to the physical sensation of the breath is in the belly. Just attending to the belly as it fills and empties. And then fills again and empties again. For some of us, because of a relationship to the body, a relationship to our breathing, the breath, 
uh, the the body, the breath doesn't feel like uh, a, a supportive object upon which to place our attention. And so if that's true for you, then you can place your attention on sound. And you can listen to the sounds in the room or you can listen to the sounds coming in through a window or if you're outdoors, listen to the sounds outdoors. Just noticing the sounds as they come and go. sounds. And when the mind wanders, which it will, that's not a problem. And don't make it a problem either because the mind just wanders the Stomach digests, the heart beats, the mind wanders. It's not a problem. And once it's wandered while you're in that wandering mind state, there's really nothing you can do. But when you notice that the mind has wandered, you have a choice. You have two choices. Do I come back to the object of attention, my breath or sounds? Do I do that or do I space out, follow the thoughts? So make the choice to come back because this is a training, a training to be in the present moment, to let go into the present moment. So let go of the train of thoughts. It really is a great metaphor, the train. Yeah, let go of the train, come back. And do that with a lot of kindness towards yourself, a kind of benevolent frame of mind. You also have the choice of coming back and being really frustrated that the mind has wandered off. Oh, my mind, why won't it pay attention? That's not going to be helpful because all you'd be doing would be cultivating frustration. So instead of that, oh, there it is again, my wandering mind. I'll just come back. I'll just let go and come back. Letting go, coming back. And just a couple of more breaths and then at the end of the next breath, you can begin to flutter the eyes open. So that was about point one. 
It's a good billable. That was, that was great, Judy. I really, I really appreciate what you're doing, your work and the way you do it. That was very lovely. And that, that took me into a place of being a lot of gratitude. The, uh, the, the profession needs you, more of you. Um, can, you uh, can you tell the listeners where they can find you and Warrior One and anything you want them to know about this incredible program that you run, both for lawyers, firms, institutions, uh, so they know where to find you. It'll, it'll be in the episode notes along with the podcast. Uh, sure. You can go to warrioron.com. That's all spelled out, uh, Warrior One. You can reach out to me directly at Judy at Warrior One. We'd love to hear from you if you think it could be helpful. Thanks so, so, so much for for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. You guys are such an inspiration that, you know, two really tough trial lawyers would take this turn, really this pivot, and bring mindfulness into your lives and into the courtroom. It's such an inspiration. So keep up the amazing work. Thank you. Judy, thank you. Judy is the real deal. Um, I've, I've sat with her for hours and hours, and you got a lot of depth, and I really, um, I'm very grateful. Thanks again, Judy. Keep it up. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Iron Advocate, and that you take what you've learned and integrate it into your own personal practice. As always, we leave you with a minute of mindfulness. Breathe in, breathe out, and we'll see you next time.